For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. All right, the title of our sermon this evening, The Two Witnesses, this is part two, Revelation chapter 11, verses one through six. So welcome back, our Sunday evening consideration of the revelation of Jesus Christ, where tonight we're continuing now our work through Revelation chapter 11 and the cycle of trumpets. And it's uh, in the increasing intensity and in the increasing severity of those judgments poured out during these last days, Judgments representative are represented in the visions given to the Apostle John in chapters 8 and chapters 9, that we now see a vision of the church. It's as though we're taking a breath, right? We're getting um, some fresh air, if you will, these judgments being poured out upon those who dwell on the earth. And then our attention now is directed away from the wicked, away from God's judgment upon those who dwell on the earth, and directed to the church during the same period of time. The church's work, the church's mission, the church's witness during the time period in which we now live, these last Last days. In the midst of a tempest, we take a breath. It's a literary parenthesis. And in this literary parenthesis that begins with chapter 10, we're first called to consider the recommissioning of John as God's eschatological prophet. The angel, the angel of the Lord, commissions John as God's eschatological prophet. And then we're called in chapter 11 to consider the work of the church during this age, which is the work of witness. The church as God's witness to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that work now as we're considering Revelation chapter 11, we see that work as typological of those Old Testament prophets. The work of the church during this time fits a pattern, if you will. It's typological of those prophets of God throughout the ages that have proclaimed his word. And the church now functions in that course, in that stream, if you will. So as John is recommissioned, we then see the work of the commissioned church in her witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verses one through three, then in Revelation chapter 11, as we're considering the work of the church, God measures off or marks off his people. He distinguishes those who worship him in the naos, the most holy place. We've seen that in scripture, haven't we, multiple times, where we are able, by virtue of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has entered behind the veil for us, by virtue of his person and work, by virtue of our union with him, because he has imputed his righteousness to us and we are counted righteous in him, we are to go behind the veil with him. We can enter the very throne room of grace with boldness. Why? Because our forerunner has entered first there for us. And so as he is distinguishing those who worship in the most holy place, those are, that's us. Those are his people. We worship as it were in the presence of God by virtue of the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, right? We've been washed in the blood. So by virtue of his work, we worship in the naos. God bounds, he marks off, he measures off those who worship before the throne of God in the naos. By virtue of union with Jesus Christ, he marks off his true worshipers and he distinguishes them from those who are on the outside. All of those who are on the outside. In particular, he references those who are immediately on the outside. Those who are in the courts. Those who trample the holy city underfoot. And I think that's a reference to false religion. Those who 
presumed to be worshipers of God. They're in the courts of the temple, so to speak, but not in the naos. They're not true worshipers. Those who are outside, those who are trampling the holy city underfoot, he distinguishes those within from those without. And all the nations are on the outside. Nations who have been in the words there, Revelation chapter 11, verses one through three, they've been cast away, cast out, trampling the courts, trampling the holy city underfoot in these last days, represented by that symbolic figure, 42 months, right? So God then, having set a boundary around his people, he then refers to them as his two witnesses, and he empowers them to prophesy. Verse three, and I will give power. That's because God's presence is in their midst. I will give power to my two witnesses. How does that power come to us? By his spirit. He has taken up his abode with us. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Verse four, these are the two olive trees, sons of oil, and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. As we've seen, God empowers them to prophesy for the very same length of time that the Gentiles are going to trample the courts and the holy city underfoot. 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, times, time, and half a time. In other words, these figures are figurative. <laughs> they're symbolic, they're representative, and they're representative for a same period of time. And as we've seen, we'll look again when we get to Revelation 12, but as we've seen, that time period refers to these last days. That period that is encompassed by the cycles. So that entire cycle of seals, now the entire cycle of trumpets, that period between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, signified by this particular period of time. There are reasons for the difference that are suggested. Oftentimes, Uh, 42 months used of a conquering army. They conquer and prevail for 42 months. Uh, 1,260 days referring to service rather than a, a defeat, if you will. There are reasons for that. We don't have time to get into that tonight. We will when the time comes. Now, first, I want you to consider with me in in part one on this text, we considered then the identity of these two witnesses. The two witnesses in Revelation 11 are described in verses 5 and 6. We're going to look at 5 and 6 more in, in a detail tonight. They're described in verse 6 as those who have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. In other words, they come in the power and spirit of Elijah. These two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 verse 6 are described as those who have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. In other words, they come in the power and spirit of Moses. And the word of God proceeds forth from their mouths like fire, meaning that they come in the power and spirit of Jeremiah. God says, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire. This people would, and it shall deliver them. We're going to look at these statements in more detail. But what are we to understand now from these images? Remember, these are symbols. They're visions given to the apostle. What are we we to understand from them? These two witnesses are fulfilling a pattern that was established by those Old Testament prophets. And those prophets are representative of all Old Testament prophets. Moses, representative of the law. Elijah, representative of the prophets. And they form a pattern that is now followed by these two witnesses. Those Old Testament prophets were typological of these New Testament 
eschatological, new covenant witnesses of God. In the same way that Elijah was typological of John the Baptist, who came in the, spirit, the power and spirit of Elijah, those Old Testament prophets, typological of these two witnesses. Next, having determined their identity, we looked at the time of their witness. And we determined from the testimony of Daniel, we determined from the chronology of Revelation chapter 12, that these two witnesses testified during the entirety of this age. The full period of time under the purview of these cycles, that period of time between the first and second advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're going to testify, these two witnesses are going to testify until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. For times, time, and half a time. Now, we, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're given that commission. And so we've identified these two witnesses as the church. And with that great commission given to us more than 2,000 years ago, the, the Spirit of God poured out at Pentecost to empower his saints to mission more than 2,000 years ago. And the church, his two witnesses, have been preaching the gospel for over 2,000 years now. And God, through their witness, is building his eschatological temple. Living stone upon living stone. Paul says, you are the temple of the living God. And the church is continuing their witness. That's our role with the Great Commission, brothers and sisters. That's what we're here to do. We're to sustain his worship and we're to sustain his witness until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. We do that until the return of the Lord. We do that until the end of the age. So we concluded then from our study in part one, these two witnesses empowered by God to preach the gospel during these last days, they are a reference to the church. They are the ones who shine as lights atop the lampstands. We know from Revelation 1, 2, and 3 that those lampstands refer to the church. They are the sons of oil from Zechariah chapter 4. They are the ones charged by God to preach his gospel. They are heralds to this generation. They are the ones empowered by his spirit to accomplish that mission. And the reason that there are two the reason they were sent out by the Lord two by two in Luke 11, for example, that reason is found under the law in Deuteronomy 19, in a text we'll look at more in detail tonight, that two or three witnesses are necessary to establish one as a transgressor under the law. So, concerning God's people, God measures them out as his own. God supplies them with power by his spirit. He then commissions them, and he sends them out as he did the prophets that went before them, and they have been given the charge to preach the gospel, to herald the gospel during this dispensation of the church. These two witnesses symbolize the testimony of the church for Jesus Christ during the extent of the church age as the Lord builds his eschatological temple. Now, the implications of this symbol, this symbolism, the implications are intensely practical. The work of these two witnesses is the work of the church. The work of these two witnesses is our work. It's what we're here to do. It's the great commission that we've been given. We are God's martus. We are God's witnesses. Now, we discussed this recently, and I won't belabor this point, but martus is the Greek word from which we derive our English word martyr. The word in Revelation 11 is translated witness, but the word substantiates or it points to an important implication to our witness in this world that is going to hate us. The Lord Jesus Christ said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first, right? The world hates us because the world hated the Lord Jesus Christ. The world hates us because we testify of it that its deeds are evil. So martus, a martus is one who is willing to die for his testimony. There is a willingness to come and die. 
one pastor on this text quoted the Belgic Confession on this point. And I thought the Belgic Confession was extremely helpful here. Article 28 of the Confession Article 28 describes the duty of every believer to bind themselves to the worship and service of the Lord's church. We have a duty to bind ourselves to the Lord's church and to labor in her, to resolve conflict in her, to love one another in her, to employ our gifts in her, for her, in her service, in our mission. We are commanded, we're, we're duty-bound to join ourselves together and to labor with that church till the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in the mission of the gospel and in love for one another, sustaining his worship, sustaining the ordinances, and sustaining our witness. So the article in the Belgic Convention, Article 28, points this out. And because of what that commitment might entail, because of the persecution that the church was facing at that time, and brothers and sisters, even because of the persecution that we face in our own time, those who joined the church in Belgium were asked explicitly to explicitly confess a willingness to come and die for the sake of Jesus Christ. Listen to this, Article 28 of the Belgic Confession. We believe since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved, and that out of it there is no salvation, that no person of whatsoever state or condition he may be ought to withdraw himself to live in separate state from it, but that all men are in duty bound to join and unite themselves with it, maintaining the unity of the church, submitting themselves to the doctrine of the church, the discipline of the church, bowing their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ as mutual members of the same body, serving to the edification of the brethren according to the talents that God has given them. And that this may be the more effectually observed, it is the duty of all believers, according to the word of God, to separate themselves from all those who do not belong to the church and to join themselves to this congregation wheresoever God hath established it, even though the magistrates and edicts of princes were against it. Yea, though they should suffer death or any other corporal punishment. Therefore, all those who separate themselves from the same or do not join themselves to it act contrary to the ordinance of God. They understood this well. They understood that the call to discipleship is a call to come and die. We are to separate ourselves from the world. We are, to call, we are called to consecrate ourselves to the Lord as his martus, as his witnesses, as his willing martyrs. Be willing to die for his cause. If we're willing to die for his cause, we should be willing to live for it. Amen? The church carries on that work. For 2,000 years, we've carried on that work. The church carries on the work of God as God's heralds, a work that is seen in the ministries of Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, and now John, a work that is characterized by all the same weighty responsibilities, a work that is characterized by all that the word martus implies, not identified with the whims of the world, but identified with the faithful Old Testament prophets who were faithful even to death. Now, Paul has essentially said the same in the New Testament. We read that account throughout the New Testament. Paul even said that he carried around in himself a sentence of death. Do you remember that from 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. He goes on in verse 13, speaking of his witness. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. 
we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. You see what Paul is saying there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13 and following, that we believe, therefore we speak, and we speak without fearing death because we know that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up. Even if we are to be killed for our witness, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who raises us from the dead. No need to fear. No need to fear. Brothers and sisters, you are invincible. You are invincible. And we have been called to be faithful. We've been given the great commission. We're to serve the Lord in a great heritage. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We cannot allow the fear of man. We cannot allow the fear of persecution. We cannot allow anything to distract us or to divert us from our task, to keep us from our appointed work. That appointed work is a great privilege, a great blessing. And we know that these two witnesses will complete the work that they've been given. They will die for their testimony in verse 7. Right? When they finish their work, they're killed. In similar fashion to their Lord, who completed the work that he had been appointed to do and died for our sake on Calvary's cross when it was complete, when it was finished, amen? Now, before we consider their end, the end of their testimony during this age, we're going to look at that when we get to verse 7. John now describes the nature of their testimony beginning in verse 5. Verse 5. And if anyone wants to harm them, Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now from verses five and six, notice first with me, God's protection of his people, God's protection. If anyone wants to harm them, that presupposes or implies that there are those who want to harm them, (laughs) right? There are those who desire, they want to harm them. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now twice in this one verse, we see a reference or desire for their harm. Repetition is added for emphasis, added for emphasis. These are, these two sentences are used the two statements are parallel to one another and repetitive of, the, of one another. They repeat the same fact because these two witnesses are going to face the hostility of this world. The world wants to harm them. The world wants to kill them. Yes, all and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Why? Because they are God's martus. They are God's witnesses. Word for harm there in verse five is an interesting word. The word is adikeo. The root of the word is a reference to righteousness. So to adikeo is to do unrighteousness, to do wrong to someone. So what we have implied in the use of that term is not only death or only murder in this case, but the term is a range, covers a range of injury a range of injury or a range of unrighteousness that would certainly include death and everything else that leads up to death. In verse eight, their dead bodies are lying in the street. So we know that they're killed. 
all right? But this use, the use of this word implies to any injury, if you will, certainly to any physical injury, certainly to any emotional abuse, any number of impositions upon them, this word implies the man hiring day workers in Matthew chapter 20 was accused of cheating those who came earlier in the day. Remember that account from Matthew 20? He said to those who came later and were paid the same wage, I have done you no adikeo. I've done you no wrong. I've done you no injustice. I've done you no unrighteousness. I haven't cheated you. Right? So that's, that word is used in that sense. God's people are going to be adikeo in every sense of that word, across the range of meanings of that word, from people who are just going to be persecuted mentally, emotionally, to physically injured, to killed. And we've seen the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout its history, adikeo in just that same way. You see? Covers that range of wrong. So in verse 5, God's people cannot be harmed. (laughs) We know that's not a reference simply to physical harm or emotional harm. Do God's people suffer physical harm? Yes, they do. Do they suffer emotional harm? Yes, they do. This is a reference, brothers and sisters, to spiritual harm, to eternal harm. This is then a reference to God's own protection and preservation of his witnesses. He seals them as his own, and that's where we get the idea that they are invincible. They're invincible. This is God's protection of his people. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds forth from them and devours them. Anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. This is God's protection of his people. One of the reasons for this protection, a reason for why they are empowered, why they are protected, why they are preserved by God, is for the effectiveness of their witness despite persecution. Despite the persecution that comes against them, they are God's witnesses, and they are going to witness until they finish their testimony in verse 7. You see, they're going to finish their testimony. God's word does not return void. When it goes out, it accomplishes the purpose for which it goes out. It does not return void. Witness accomplishes the mission that God has decreed for it to accomplish. Did Stephen accomplish his witness? Absolutely he did. Peter and Paul, two witnesses, one to the Jews, one to the Gentiles, both killed in Rome, that city called Sodom and Babylon, Both of them martyred. Did they finish their witness? Yes, they did. They accomplished their witness. God preserves them and protects them. They're going to be raised on the last day with us. They're invincible. To be in eternity with us. We're going to stand together in the assembly and worship God with Peter and Paul. With our Lord Jesus Christ. They finished their witness. They are invincible. Though they may suffer and die... They are invincible spiritually, and they will most certainly succeed in carrying out the work that they have been commissioned to to carry out. Why? Because God will accomplish all his purpose in the preaching of his word. We are invincible, and we have an invincible mission. Nevertheless, their witness will eventually come to an end. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, when they're done, When they finish their testimony, when their mission is over, when the times of the Gentiles have been fulfilled, they will be made to shut their mouths. And for three and a half days, recognize that period of time. For three and a half days, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice. 
just before the sound of the last trumpet. It's interesting. We're going to get there here shortly. But we see this church age referenced by that time period, three and a half years from Daniel's 70th week, times, times, and half a time, 1260 days, 42 months. We see that reference. Now we see this period of time after the witness is silenced as three and a half days. Elijah, interestingly enough, shut up heaven so that it would not rain for how long? Three and a half years, right? We see these references to this time period in scripture that's gonna become significant when we study that time period together later. Now, notice further with me, if anyone wants to harm them in this manner because of their witness, he must be harmed. Verse five, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. As we've already seen in part one, the ministry of Elijah is typological of the ministry of these two witnesses. Elijah informs our understanding of the ministry of these two witnesses and informs our understanding of the mission and work of the church. Turn with me to 2 Kings 1. 2 Kings 1. In 2 Kings 1, wicked King Ahaziah is injured. And having been injured, Ahaziah sends messengers and doesn't send messengers to God to inquire of God. He sends messengers to Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, the false god of Ekron, to ask if he's going to recover. Verse 3, but... The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so Elijah departed. Elijah is a prophet of the living God. When the messengers returned to him, he said to them, why have you come back? So they said in verse six, a man came up to meet us and he said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, it is because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, is it? Baalzebub, the God of Ekron. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then he said to them, what kind of man was it who came up to meet you, who told you these words? So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. You can just see King Ahaziah. Ah, it's Elijah the Tishbite, right? (laughs) Verse nine, the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. Elijah miscalculated dramatically. So he went up to him. There he was sitting on the top of a hill and he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And he sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50 men. Incidentally, one of the reasons that the rabbis believed that Moses and Elijah were both referenced in this kind of context was because both Moses and Elijah were shown to have power to call down fire out of heaven. So they both shared this this power, so to speak, from scripture. So he answered, Elijah said to the captain of 50, let fire come down 
So then, verse 11, he sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50 men. And he answered and said to him, man of God, thus has the king said, come down quickly. Verse 12, so Elijah answered and said to them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men and fire of God. The fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. I remain shocked at reading that text that it took two times to learn that lesson. <laughs> I'm not sure why they didn't figure that out on the very first occasion. <laughs> Verse 13, again, he sent a third captain of 50 men, of 50 with his 50 men. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, man of God, please, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Look, fire has come down now from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50s with their 50s, but let my life now be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. I find, that, I find that interesting. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid of them. <laughs> He's just burned up two groups of 50. So Elijah arose and went down with him to the king. Now, we see that in there, in that passage. The typological work of God's prophet. God preaching the word to idolatrous Ahaz, you're not going to get away with your idolatry. And then God demonstrating the eschatological judgment associated with his idolatry by the fire that is thrown down out of heaven to consume his men. In other words, the fire is a depiction of God's future judgment. It's an indication of God's future judgment poured out temporally, poured out physically upon those men, but pointing forward to their certain expectation of judgment and the eschatological judgment that's coming. Now, last week in part one, we also looked at Jeremiah 5.14 with reference to that same biblical truth. The people had rejected the word of God. They rejected God's call to repentance. In Jeremiah 5.14, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I make my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. In verse uh, chapter 23, Jeremiah 23, verse 28, the prophet who has a dream let him tell a dream. He who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. Why charismaticism has failed to understand that text, I'm not sure. A prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. But he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? So in the case of Jeremiah, the Lord wasn't referring to literal fire. Can the Lord use literal fire? Absolutely he can and does. But in the case of Jeremiah, the Lord's not referring here to a literal fire. Jeremiah's word, God's word through the prophet Jeremiah was a legal declaration of judgment, a legal pronouncement of the judgment that awaited them, the judgment that was coming, certainly the judgment that awaited them personally, but the judgment, the conflagration that will take the world in its heat at the end of the age. It was a foreshadowing of that fire, a warning of that fire that is to come. And what they would experience temporarily in the ministry of Elijah, here in the ministry of Jeremiah, was the beginnings of that fire. It was, if you will, God's word going out to them, 
was in effect a kindling of that fire. Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. Did some people hear the prophet Jeremiah in turn? We're certain that there would have been those who turned in repentance at the preaching of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah's ministry, Jeremiah's prophetic ministry was a tool of judgment. It had a legal aspect to it. We see the same in these two witnesses from Revelation chapter 11. Now, again, what we see at work in the testimony of God's witnesses then is the principle of lex talionis. We talked about that this morning. And that comes to us from Deuteronomy chapter 19. 15. We don't have time to turn there. So listen to Deuteronomy 19 verse 15. You can get there in a hurry. You can catch up with me. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So a minimum of two witnesses are required to condemn a transgressor under the law. Verse 16. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. Lex Talionis. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. Hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. Lex Talionis. God's retributive and righteous judgment. G.K. Beale said this. The witnesses of the church are sometimes even killed on account of their testimony, but encoded in the church's prophetic message is the declaration of spiritual death for all those rejecting the witness. It is a kindling of that future fire. In verse 6, we see the very same idea communicated through the example of Moses. Revelation chapter 11, verse 6. These have the power to shut, shut heaven. These two witnesses have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophet, prophecy. That's a reference to Elijah. And Elijah shutting up the heavens for three and a half years while no rain fell. And verse six, they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. If fire from the mouth of God's witnesses is figurative, is often figurative, then the plagues referenced in verse 6 are figurative as well. And all of this connects these witnesses to those who came before them in God's testimony to a wayward people. The prophets of God were God's prosecuting attorneys against, a witness against, his prosecuting attorneys against a disobedient and rebellious and idolatrous people. Brothers and sisters, we follow in the same typological pattern. The church enters into this age as Christ's witnesses. And as Christ's witnesses, there is a legal aspect to our witness. Those who reject the witness of God's heralds, they kindle a fire that will be fulfilled at the end of the age in the judgment. If they do not turn in repentance and faith, they're going to face an, an eschatological judgment that is being kindled by those witnesses in the preaching of the gospel through their rejection of the gospel. It's God's witnesses that testify against them. Do you see? We follow in the same typological pattern. 
It's fascinating to think about Peter and Paul in that respect, as we talked about earlier. They modeled the church's witness to Jews and to Gentiles. They were two witnesses to the world, as it were, representative of all the witnesses that would come after them. Both were martyred in Rome for their testimony, their dead bodies lying in the street of that city, so to speak. People rejoicing that they were put to death. The description of the two witnesses is typological. Or, as Beale says, it's a transcendental model. I like that. It's a transcendental model of all true prophets, of all true witnesses of God. To some, their witness is the aroma of life. To others, their witness is the aroma of death. To us, brothers and sisters, is given the charge to be faithful, to be given the charge to be faithful in the work. So in summary then, if you think about this text, think with me about these two witnesses. They are, these are two witnesses described as witnessing on the earth before the face of God. They're standing before God or in the presence of God. They are represented by the two lampstands in the heavenly sanctuary. Lampstands that we know are representative of the church. They're supplied with oil by the two olive trees, the sons of oil. That oil we know representing the anointing of God, if you will. The power of God's spirit poured out upon them, first at Pentecost and now to everyone who believes. His spirit poured out upon them to empower them to witness to empower them, enable them to accomplish their mission. And now as lights atop the lampstand, they shine as the lights of God in the darkness of this world. The word that they preach goes forth in power. They are invincible because God protects and preserves them. Their their mission, their message, their witness is invincible because God's word accomplishes the purpose for which it goes out. So although we witness here on earth, There is a vital union with the triune God in heaven, a union that will inform and motivate and fuel our witness for him. Brothers and sisters, we seek to be faithful in the great commission that God has given us. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this picture of the church during this time of the end. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege, the tremendous blessing of being your witnesses during this age. And like our brothers who saw the risen Christ after his crucifixion, we see with the eyes of faith and believe with the eyes of faith that Christ has been raised from the dead. Cause us, Lord, enable us, empower us, strengthen us, motivate us by your spirit to go forth with faith in you, with the knowledge of that he is the one who raises us from the dead and with boldness proclaim your word in a world that hates you. Help us to be faithful in that commission, knowing, Lord, that you have determined that as the means through which people will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Help us to be faithful despite the persecution that we face. Give us foreheads of flint and backbones of steel. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you in this, we pray. For the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the glory of your name, and the power of your spirit, magnify the work of your spirit in us. Produce fruit through us for the glory of your name. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.
Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.